This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's so good to be here today, and it's good to see such a great crowd. I hope all of you have charts. I hope you were given those. If you need one, raise a hand. We'll bring one where you're seated. If you will look those over with me, there's an order of scripture down at the bottom. Now, this is a two-part study today that I will finish up this afternoon, and so you're welcome to keep this chart or take it with you if uh, you don't intend to be back this afternoon. If you do, may I suggest that you leave it where you're seated, where you'll have it later on for the afternoon study. And I'll give you some supplemental material this afternoon. So the order of scriptures at the bottom, it's two parts. We'll not be using all of these this morning. I'm going to lay some foundational things this morning that we'll build on for this, this afternoon. Inside, you will see on the back side of the front, a artist's conception of the tabernacle that Moses was given the pattern for at Mount Sinai. And I want to talk to you a little bit about this tabernacle. And over on the other page across from it will be a scripture on the Day of Atonement. I want to talk to you about that annual sacrifice that God demanded to be offered and the significance of it, especially as it relates to Jesus Christ. And uh, so we'll talk about a lot of things like that. We'll talk about the nation of Israel and some of their history, the reasons why God singled them out among all the people on earth to be his people and the purpose of all of this. And I want to talk to us especially this afternoon about who are the chosen people of God and uh, impress upon you various things about that and the great blessings that we enjoy being God's people. The opening scripture will be on the top under the title, but the rest of the scriptures are on the back side, unless it's the one on the inside that I'll call attention to. If I inject one or two, uh, just quoting or something, well, just stay with me and I'll get back in line. But on the back side, you'll find the scriptures, and I tried to staple these together where you could look at the front and turn around to the back and get your scriptures. It should be real handy for you. Underneath the title, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10, Peter writes, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Whoever Peter is writing to now are the chosen people of God. I want you to notice that. They are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. He said that at one time they were not a people, but he said, now you're the people of God. So whoever they were at one time, very likely most of them had never been, they'd never been a people. And he said, uh, now you're the people of God. You haven't obtained mercy, but now you have. Now, I want to uh, say right up front, I'm not anti-Semitic. I have no problem with Israel over in the Middle East. 
There's a misconception today that they are the chosen people of God over there. And at one time, of course, the Jews were. We'll talk a lot about that this morning. No longer are they exclusively the people of God. Some of them may be, but others, of course, uh, not so. And we'll talk about that and who the real people of God are when we get to this afternoon's study. But nonetheless, at one time, they certainly were singled out. I want you to look at the timeline on the front of your chart, starting over the creation. It's about a third of the way up from the bottom <clears throat> and uh, coming to the flood. Then you have the call of Abraham. And what God did was call Abraham off, separate him from all humanity, build from him a nation which he would call Israel, and chose them to be his people. This people he preserved. He gave them laws and covenants that he gave no other people. He gave them a sacrificial system. He gave them a portable worship center, a tabernacle that they could carry around with them and set up for to worship him. He gave them all kinds of covenants and promises that he never made with anyone else. Blessed them far above any other people on earth made them his own and preserved that nation. And even as they, as you trace the line here, and they went into captivity, when they, 10 of the tribes pulled off to the north and formed a northern kingdom and two stayed loyal to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon in the south, and you had Israel and Judah split out of the 12 tribes. Both of them went into captivities, yet God preserved a remnant of them and brought them back into the land and united them again. Because he was using that nation and that bloodline from Abraham and David to bring forth his son at a point in history so that he could offer his blood a sacrifice for sin and rise from the dead to conquer death and take Jew and Gentile ultimately and reconcile them unto God in one body, the church. And this has been God's plan from eternity. He didn't just hatch this plan as man's history went along. God formulated this plan before the foundation of the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before creation ever occurred in the mind of God. They had already worked out our salvation because God foresaw that you and I would sin. God foresaw that we would need a sacrifice that would take care of that sin problem. He already had a plan and it involved Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. They saw it and then God created, but he had everything already in his mind what he would do down the stream of time in history. And that's why all of this was brought about. It was under his great foreknowledge of what was to come and what he needed to do to remedy that. How he could be just and how he could have mercy upon a sinful people that he had created yet loved. This is the whole plan. Jesus is the central theme of the Bible. Folks, he is, he is everything in the Bible. You first read about him in Genesis 3.15. You last read about him in Revelation 22. He's throughout scripture in types and shadows and prophecies and is promised and revealed ultimately. He is the theme of your Bible, and without him, we might as well leave here this morning and just go to the house.
because there's not one shred of hope without him. What I want to impress upon us today is there's no person in this universe that you and I need like we need Jesus Christ. Folks, man's got two great needs. I'll talk about them later. We need a sacrifice for sin. We need something that can pay our debt, that can bear the penalty that we owe. and Pay that for us so that we can go free. And we need to come up out of the ground one day. We need a resurrection from the dead. Those two great things Jesus solved. Our greatest needs, our greatest problems. He provides everything that you and I need. And you cannot afford to be without him. You will never reach God without him. Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father by, but by me. Folks, that's either true or false. If that's true, you'll never get to heaven without Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people today on earth that need to know this. They're caught up in fables and false religions. Some of them are just caught up in worldliness and, and carelessness. And they don't understand their great need for Christ. I want to impress that upon all of us today. Many people around the world will be thinking of Jesus on this day, yet we think of him all the time and certainly every first day of the week as we break bread. We remember that death and that resurrection weekly and hopefully daily in our lives. I want to study a lot of that with you today. There on the back side are scriptures. I want you to look with me now at uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. As you look at the timeline there on the front, God separated Abraham off at a point in time from the human race. And he made a threefold promise to him right here in Genesis 12. You'll see it listed in smaller print in near the upper left side of your chart up there. He made him a land promise, first of all. Get out of your father's house and come to a land that I will show thee. And he promised him the land of Canaan. Now that land was inhabited by seven nations by the time that Israel was ready to go in under Joshua to conquer it. And they had great battles to fight in order to take it. But God had promised it to Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob. So he gives him the land promise. He said, I'll make of you a great nation. That's Israel. I'll make of you, Abraham, a nation. Think of that. How would you like God to separate you off and say, I'm going to give you a special land, a whole country. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a, a nation from your descendants. Make a nation out of you. And then, then after that promise, he said, in thee, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's a spiritual promise that Jesus Christ, Abraham's descendant, would come and that he would bless every family on earth that wanted to have that blessing. 
All of that through Abraham. And so God separates him off now from all the rest of humanity and uh, promises the land of Canaan. Abraham gets up and leaves Ur of the Chaldees. He journeyed about 600 miles northwest up the Euphrates River to a place called Haran. He took his father, Terah. He took his wife, Sarah, and he took his nephew, Lot, the four of them. And they stayed up in Haran till Terah, Abraham's father, died at age 215. Abraham left Haran then, and he and Sarah and Lot went down into the land of Canaan. Abraham never built a house there. He was a nomad. He roamed the land. He went up and down through the land. And, of course, he was a rancher. He raised uh, his flocks and things. And in that, in that time, it was short grass country over there. There were no fences. You just simply moved your flocks to wherever there was pasture for them. And he moved all over that land with his flocks and herds and became very prosperous. As he got old, God had, remember, promised a seed. He'd promised him that he'd bless all nations through him. Abraham was childless. He was getting quite old now and Sarah herself old. God and Abraham were talking one day and Abraham said to God, is this servant that I have in my house, is he going to be heir to everything I've got? And God said, no. Sarah's going to have a child in her old age, Abraham. And that child will be your heir. And of course, he promised a nation through that child. Abraham believed that promise. When Abraham was about 100 years old, Sarah was 90. She gave birth to Isaac and fulfilled that promise made to Abraham. If you'll look just above the mountain picture there and follow that dotted line up to the top, you'll see Abraham's name in red up there. And you'll see this boy, Isaac. Isaac had a son. He had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. But Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Look at the scripture right over to the right of that line. I know it's small. Genesis 35, 10, God said unto him, talking to Jacob, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. So God changed Jacob's name to Israel. If you wonder about the children of Israel, they are the 12 sons of Jacob. Look at this. Down below the lineage lines there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who became Israel. You see his 12 sons, and there they are, left to right. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. These are the 12 sons, or the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel is Jacob. Each of these boys fathered uh, many, many children, 12 sons. You would understand there would be many of them. In the days when Joseph was, was sold by his brothers down into slavery in Egypt, and about 20 years afterward when the, when the drought hit Canaan and Abraham heard of 
grain being sold in Egypt and sent some of the boys down there to buy, Joseph had become governor. Remember, he recognized his brothers. He revealed his identity to them. And he forgave them for their transgression of selling him into slavery. You'll also remember that he sent wagons back with him to move the family down into Egypt that he might take care of them. All of Abraham's posterity at that time, when, when Joseph was governor in Egypt, Jacob and all of his boys and their wives and children together numbered about 75 people. 75 of Abraham's descendants are now in Egypt. They're free for a time, but eventually a Pharaoh arose that didn't know Joseph. And this people had multiplied so greatly, Pharaoh was afraid of them and made slaves of them. And that nation then, these, these descendants of Abraham were in bondage. When they came out of Egypt under Moses and crossed the Red Sea, they numbered several million. Think of that. There's that nation. When you think of the Red Sea crossing and the trip to Sinai, the wandering in the wilderness there, think of a city perhaps the size of Houston, Texas. They've got flocks and herds. They've got to be fed every day. Their livestock needs food and water. It's a monumental thing to move that people through a barren wilderness and care for them like God did, and yet he did it. So now here's this nation that God promised Abraham. It's called Israel. Moses led him over to, let me, let me go to Genesis 22 with you first, verse 15 to 18 there on the back. I want to catch a promise to Abraham. The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham, this is after he'd offered Isaac for, for sacrifice to God, called the second time uh, out of heaven here, and he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, hath not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Notice seed there is singular, we'll come to that later. In thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So here's this nation then. God has told Abraham, uh, he told him back in Genesis 15, look up in the heavens, if you will, Abraham. Number the stars, if you can tell me. That's going to be the number of your descendants through Isaac. Abraham, think about the sand upon the seashore. Number that for me, if you can. That will be the number of your descendants through Isaac. He's talking about you and me, by the way. We, as I'll show you later, are the descendants of Abraham through Jesus Christ. And this is that blessing to all nations, Jew and Gentile, that he talked about that would come on humanity through Christ, through Abraham's seed. So now we have a great nation. They've come out of Egyptian bondage. There's probably several million now. Some estimate three to five million that crossed the Red Sea. Because when they numbered them there, at Mount Sinai, just the men that were 20 and above 
able to go to war were 603,550. That's just males, 20 and above. That's not counting any women. It's not counting any children, no males under 20, or anyone over 20 that's crippled up and can't fight or is too old. When they numbered 603,550, and if you figured four people, four other people for each of those males, which is probably a, a very light estimate, you're looking at well over two million right there. So truly it may be three to five million people. Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, and there at Sinai they camped for, for one year. During that one year, three major events happened that I want to mention to us. Number one, the law was given. This was God's people. I want you to read Exodus 19, verse 1 to 6, and what God said to Moses here at Sinai. Pay attention to the wording of this, and think about the scripture that we read at the opening. When Peter says, you are a peculiar people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, etc. Think about this. In Exodus 19, 1, in the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, listen, now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. In other words, you'll be a peculiar people. So you'll be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. There's the royal priesthood, see. And a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So Israel at that point was selected by God to be a peculiar people to him. To be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And he said, you're going to be that if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant. You see, them being the people of God was always conditional. It was conditioned upon whether or not they would obey God and keep covenant with him. And if they would do that, they would always be his people. If they'd just do that. But they didn't do that. And yet God favored this people for a long time and made them his and blessed them like no other. His whole purpose is to preserve the bloodline of Abraham through that nation so that at a point in history he can bring out of that lineage of, of Abraham through David, Jesus Christ, to offer himself a sacrifice for sin and to conquer death and ultimately to take Jew and Gentile then and reconcile them unto God in one body. This is the reason for that people the reason why they were his chosen people for so many centuries. The whole purpose was to bring Jesus out of that lineage. 
and God blessed them abundantly. As I said, they camped at Sinai one year, and three major things happened. Number one, God gave them laws. He gave them the law, written law. Would you read now Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 to 3? Moses spoke this later. It had occurred at, at Mount Horeb, in, or which is Sinai. Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. So God gave them the Ten Commandments, and he gave them all of his laws to Moses, the great lawgiver. What did he do for us Gentiles? Gave us no written law whatsoever. We had no covenants with him. We didn't have anything like that from God that he gave to the, to the Jews, to the children of Israel. In fact, God left us under natural law, what we know by nature, the law in our heart. And if you'll read Romans 2, verse 14 to 16, the Bible says, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What Paul is telling us is Gentiles never had the laws that the Jew did. God left us with the law in the heart, what we knew by nature. All of us have a knowledge of good and evil, don't we? And so as our minds develop and as we get older, we understand you don't go next door and take any of your neighbor's things. You don't steal. You don't lie. You don't bear false witness in such things. We understand these things by nature, but the Jew had them written down. And God made covenants and laws with them that he made not with us. And he just kind of left the Gentiles on our own. He blessed us with rain, the Bible says, in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with joy. He gave us all of the physical blessings, his sunshine, his rain, harvest, and such things as that. He still blessed everyone on earth, but he blessed Israel far above all others. To them... He gave laws, he gave covenants, he made promises. He gave them a system of worship and a priesthood. Let's read about the priesthood first, and I want to talk to you about the, the system of worship. He selected Aaron and his sons to be his priest. That would be the priest line. Now, if you'll look at Jacob's 12 sons on the third son, Levi, you'll see a line coming down from them to Aaron and Moses. Aaron and Moses, that's in the left side here, Aaron and Moses came from the tribe of Levi, the third son. In between Aaron and Moses and Levi up there are all kinds of descendants. Just think of a family tree that comes down and stair steps and branches coming off of it. Eventually, Moses and Aaron came out of Levi. They are brothers. Aaron is older. Moses was chosen to be the lawgiver. 
the great mediator between God and the people. But Aaron was chosen as the first high priest. And Aaron had sons. He had four of them, in fact. In Exodus 40, verse 12 to 15, there on the back, God tells Moses, Thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and wash them with water. Thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments, and anoint him, and sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thus shalt thou, and thou shalt bring his sons, and clothe them with coats. And thou shalt anoint them as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall be surely an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. In Numbers 3, verse 1 to 4. Now also, these also are the generations of Aaron and Moses. In the day that the Lord spake with Moses in Mount Sinai, these are the names of the sons of Aaron. Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu. Eleazar and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, uh, and the priests which were anointed, whom he consecrated to minister in the priest's office. And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. And Eleazar and Ithamar ministered in the priest's office in the sight of Aaron their father. So Aaron's got four boys. Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire, and that only left two sons. Aaron was the high priest. Both of these boys were priests. How did the priesthood come down into Israel? The, the descendants of these two boys then became priests, and their descendants became priests. So that if you were a priest in Israel, you had to come out of the tribe of Levi and specifically through Aaron's family, you had to be able to prove your lineage that way. No one was a priest. When you turn to your New Testament and you read about John the Baptist's father, Zacharias there, ministering to God in the priest office, he would have been a descendant not only of Levi, but through Aaron, Moses' brother. And of course, uh, part of that lineage that was privileged to be the priesthood. Us Gentiles never had a priesthood. We never had a high priest. We never had priests to offer sacrifices for us. We never had laws like this. At Sinai, God gave them the law. He gave them this priesthood, which was part of the law. The second thing they did that year was they numbered the people. They took a census. And as I told you, there were 603,550 males above 20 able to fight. And the rest of the whole nation wasn't even numbered. There were likely several million. So they took that census. That's where the book of Numbers gets its name. Numbers, they numbered the people. The third thing that they did at Mount Sinai that year they camped there when they got the law. God gave Moses a pattern for the tabernacle, and they built it. Would you look on the back side now of your front at the drawing of the tabernacle here? Let's look at it a minute. This was a portable worship center for Israel, very significant. That outer line there that you see represents a fence. 
It had a portable fence. They had fence posts. Uh, there were sockets that sat in the ground there, and these posts were just set down into them. Curtains were draped over these as, they, as the posts down through there, like you'd set fence posts. They draped certain curtains and linens over them that hid this uh, inner workings inside the tabernacle from view. And this thing would be set up. It left a courtyard, and then on the inside of it was the tabernacle itself. This was a tent that consisted of a couple of rooms. We'll look at it in a minute. This thing was always set up facing east. And you entered it from this east end down here where the altar of burnt offering is. Once you entered the courtyard, you saw this altar of burnt offering. That's where animal sacrifices were offered. That was portable. They carried that around with them. The Levites, the whole tribe of Levi was set aside to carry this thing, to pack it up, to set it, pack it to, and carry it, to set it up when they stopped. And their task was to take care of it. The next thing between you and the tabernacle itself was a laver. And this was a brass laver. When the priest would go into this tabernacle, he washed hands and feet right here. And then you entered into the tabernacle itself. It had two rooms, the first one a holy place, the second one called the most holy place. In this first room on your left side was a lampstand. The King James Version calls it a candlestick, but actually it burned oil. It was made out of gold, seven branches with knops and flowers carved in it, just beautiful work. And that was, that was lit and, and, and burned oil there to give light in this place. Over on the right was a table of showbread. It was made of wood, but overlaid with gold so that you never saw the wood. You see the poles, the staves run through it. That's how they carried it when they moved it. On that table were 12 loaves of bread, one for the each, each of the 12 tribes. That was put on that table fresh every Sabbath. 12 fresh loaves put there, and the priest ate the, the week old bread and uh, put 12 fresh loaves on there. Right in front of the veil, the curtain there that separates the two rooms, was an altar of incense. It too was made of wood but overlaid with gold. There you see the staves, the poles by which it was carried. If a priest would offer incense there, he would wash his hands and feet out here at the laver. He was to scoop his coals from underneath the altar out here with his censer. That's what Nadab and Abihu didn't do when they offered strange fire. That got their fire somewhere else. This was holy fire. Leviticus 16.12 will tell you. So he would wash his hands and feet, scoop his coals, take his uh, incense and the, and the uh, censer into the first room there in the tabernacle and place it up on the altar of incense and sprinkle that incense on those burning coals and that would ascend up with a sweet odor to God there and symbolized prayer. And uh, you remember when Zacharias, uh, John the Baptist's father, was offering incense when the angel appeared to announce John's birth. The people outside were said to be praying. It was an hour of prayer. And that incense inside represented their prayers going up to God, acceptable and sweet savor to him. 
as they prayed outside. So this was done every day, uh, morning and evening, incense offered and also, pardon me, <clears throat> offered on other days. <clears throat> Inside the veil, behind it, <clears throat> the, the Ark of the Covenant. No one entered this room but the high priest. He went in once a year. He's the only one that could go back there. He went back there because that's where God was. This ark was placed in there. This ark was a wooden box overlaid with gold. Never saw the, never saw the wood. You see the top of it. It's called the mercy seat. Inside this ark are the two tables of stone with the Ten Commandments. That's where they were kept. It was the law. The ark of the covenant, see. The book of the law was placed in the side of it. Inside also that ark was Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron had a dead rod of wood there that budded overnight on one occasion. That was kept in that ark. They kept a pot of manna in there as a remembrance that God had fed them with that bread from heaven while they wandered in the wilderness 40 years. Those three items were in that ark. On top of it was the mercy seat. And these uh, beings there on the top are cherubs, cherubim. They faced each other with wings spread, and God's glory would come down between the wings of those cherub and fill this room with smoke. And God dwelled here. But you see, God always looked down on the broken law, the covenant down below him in that box, in that ark was continually broken by Israel. That displeased God and angered him. And every day, or every year, I'm sorry, God chose one day in the year, it was the same day every year, for a sacrifice to be offered on this mercy seat right here. That was a type of Christ, of course, to be offered for sin. I want to read that with you on the following page over here where it says Day of Atonement. <clears throat> Day of Atonement. Folks, this is a long reading, but bear with me. This is important because when we come to Jesus, we need to know some things like this. It's very ritualistic, but here's what God demanded. Leviticus 16 <clears throat> and verse 1 to 34. The Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. The Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh. And he shall be girded with a, with a linen girdle, and the linen mitre shall be, uh, with, with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. <clears throat> Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, 
which is for himself and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So he took a bull and he offered that for his sins and his family specifically. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat in the wilderness. Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and he shall take the censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil, and he shall put the incense of upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do that, with, uh, do that with blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgression in all, that, in, in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and hath made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord. That's the one out in the courtyard. And make an atonement for it. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. He shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now watch this. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the goat, of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, he shall he shall let go the goat in the wilderness, and Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall put off the linen garments which he had put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, and put on his garments and come forth, and offer his burnt offering, 
and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he, he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. And the bullock of the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall one carry forth without the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their dung. So the rest of the carcass of these animals were burned, see. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh. And afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a statute for you, unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you. You shall afflict your souls by statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement and put on the linen breeches, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priest and for the, all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute with you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year, and he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Quite a ritual, isn't it? Seventh month, tenth day of the month, the day of atonement, a holy Sabbath. Aaron goes in behind that curtain, taking the blood of a bull, and he sprinkles that place. He anoints the, the ark and, and cleanses it, and he cleanses that room in there with it. And he puts blood and offers it on that mercy seat for his sins and his family. Now the two goats are brought, and their lots are cast upon them, one for the Lord, one for the people. The Lord's goat, unfortunate, he gets his throat cut, and they collect his blood. And Aaron takes the blood back in there because it takes the blood of that goat, you see. And he offers it, and he cleanses things with it. The blood of the bull and the gold ultimately were brought out all the way in the courtyard to this altar and he touches the horns on it and he sanctifies it with that blood. He sanctifies this whole thing here with that blood going through these rituals. That other goat that's not killed is called the scapegoat. Aaron lays his hands over on its head symbolically transferring his sins and the sins of the people over on this animal. The animal will now bear the sins. He is led out in the barren wilderness where nobody is. And there he's turned loose, symbolizing the removal of sin out of God's presence. So then he no longer sees it among Israel. And this had to be done every year. The problem? This couldn't take away sin. Every year, sins were remembered, the same old sins, plus any new ones. Some people like to say, well, sin was rolled forward. I don't know that that's a biblical term. 
The Bible says the sins were brought up in remembrance every year because they never were forgiven. And the Bible tells us that it's impossible for bulls and goats to pay this debt. Look, in, look on the uh, Day of Atonement page there down at the bottom. Hebrews 10, verse 1 to 4. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. So this, this blood that was being offered back there really couldn't take the sin away. Had to be remembered again the next year. Why? Why can't the blood of bulls and goats take away sin? Brethren, the wages of sin is death. And so God has decreed that when you sin, you've got to die. Death will be the penalty. Every one of us have sinned. God foresaw all this. He knew this blood of bulls and goats wasn't going to take away sins. He was teaching Israel that innocent life has got to be taken to pay the debt that people owe for sin. Somebody's got to die. The problem was the animal couldn't pay the debt. And why is that? Well, let's just use Sean and Zane for an example. Here's Sean's son. How valuable is Zane? How many bulls and goats would it take to equal the value of his life? You say, well, Pat, there would never be enough bulls and goats. There couldn't be enough of them offered to pay uh, you know, to equal his life. That's true. His life is more valuable than every animal you can think of. So is your life. And since the penalty for our sins is death, that animal can't die for us. And incidentally, the life is in the blood. And God demands blood. The animal can't pay the debt. You see, his life is not valuable enough to pay the debt. God needed a sacrifice that could pay it. And ultimately, the plan was to preserve the nation of Israel, to preserve Abraham's bloodline till he could bring Abraham's seed, Jesus, through that line, through that lineage, and put him in place of these bulls and goats and take his life. Let me ask you something. How valuable is the life of the Son of God? How valuable is the life of Jesus? How valuable is his blood? The Bible calls it precious. Peter said we were redeemed not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. How valuable is the life of Jesus? Listen to me, every human being that's ever lived, their lives put together are not as valuable as the life of the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And our lives are not that valuable. Just like the, the bulls and the goats compared to Zane. 
you couldn't create enough human beings to ever equal the value of the life of Jesus Christ. So when he shed his blood on the cross that day, let's understand this, that blood is sufficient to pay our debt because it's more than our lives combined. And it's the most valuable thing in this universe because if that blood doesn't pay your debt and mine, we're going to pay it in a lake of fire for eternity. We are going to die. Somebody's going to die for our sins. And I'm impressing upon you this morning, it will be Jesus dying for you or you will die for you. And the problem is you and I can't afford to die because you can't get through paying it. It's an eternal second death in a lake of fire. That's the punishment for sin. Friends, we can't afford to pay that. So God has provided us a sacrifice. See the plan? Coming through this nation of Israel, through these descendants of Abraham. And uh, this, this has been God's plan the whole time. Read with me down there at the bottom, 1 Peter 2 and verse 21 to 24. For even here in two were you called, for Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin... Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. God's plan simply was this, folks. At a given point in time, to bring his son out of this nation of Israel that he had chosen. In order that the sins of all humanity would be laid over on that one person. Just like the scapegoat. Remember him? That's why I read all of that. Symbolically those sins were laid on the head of that goat. One of them offered for sin and the other led out in the wilderness. That day at Calvary. Your sins, my sins, the sins of those before us and those that will follow were all laid over on one person. He bore our sins, Peter said, in his own body on the tree. You wonder why he was so accursed of his father? God's angry at the human race, but that day he took his wrath and poured it out on his only son. And Jesus shed blood, life, his life, which is far more valuable than all of ours and sufficiently pays the debt that we owe. This was the whole scheme. It's the whole theme of the Bible. And we don't have a prayer without it. Let's look at the seed line here quickly before I close. I've talked long enough. We'll finish up this afternoon, and I hope you can be here for the second part. In Genesis 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one into thy seed, which is Christ. When God said in thy seed all nations of the earth be blessed, he used seed singular. Paul said he's referring to Christ. He's the seed of Abraham.
He's what would come to bless all nations. In Matthew chapter 1, you have the lineage of Jesus, and it's very important. And friends, look, we, we see these genealogies in the Bible, and people start reading so-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so, and somebody says that's so dry, I can't hardly read that stuff. It is critical stuff. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. You see, if, if, the, if that genealogy record wasn't in the Bible, God has a purpose for it there. It's given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness. So even those genealogies are so valuable, and thank God we have the one here by Jesus. Would you look now on the front of your chart with me? Right quickly, and we'll close. Look at Abraham up above the mountain up there at the top. Now come down under past the 12 sons. You'll see Abraham again in red in smaller print on the right. Here's the gene genealogy of Christ according to Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judas. These are all their sons. Phares, Esram, Aram, Amenadab, Naasson, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. Because you see there were promises made of the Christ through David also. And David's out of Abraham's lineage. Solomon. David's out of the tribe of Judah. Now these are all Judah. Solomon. Rehoboam. Uh, Abiah. Asa. Jehoshaphat. Joram. Ozias. Jonathan. Achaz. Ezekias. Manasses. Ammon, Josias, Jeconias, Salathiel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Sadak, Achim, Eliud, Eleazar, Matthan, Jacob, Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.17. He is the seed of Abraham. There's the lineage. That's very critical because we can trace Jesus back. You see, if Jesus is not the Christ and somebody comes along today, he's got to be traced in his lineage back not only through David, but all the way back to Abraham. His family tree would be critical. He could not be the Messiah without those things. That's why this record's in your Bible, to establish in your mind, to produce faith that Jesus fulfills that seed of Abraham promise, that his lineage goes back exactly through David and goes back to Abraham. As for David, God told David and swore by, swore by himself that he would always have a descendant sitting upon the throne over God's people. Always. Back during the captivity when Babylon captured Jerusalem in 606 B.C., David's lineage was stopped. And after that captivity, there never was a descendant for centuries of David reigning upon the throne over God's people. Jesus Christ, folks, was raised up from the dead, ascended to the Father, and sat on David's throne. David's throne is simply God's throne. And that's David's descendants, and, and, and that fulfilled that promise to David that he would always have a descendant reigning on the throne over his people. This morning, Jesus Christ reigns. 
on David's throne in heaven over God's people in fulfillment of the oath made to David. Peter preached that on the day of Pentecost, that God has swore with an oath that of the fruit of the law, of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And Peter said, he's seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. So now David's got that descendant on the throne and we can trace who he is and his name is Jesus. God's plan, let me sum up here and we'll close. There are three parties, three persons in this, what we call the Godhead. One of them is the Father, another one's called the Word, and another one's the Holy Spirit. The one called the Word came down according to John 1 and was made flesh. Remember the scripture, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. There's the Son of God. The Word comes down in that virgin child at Bethlehem. And Mary is pregnant. She is with child, not by a human being, not by a man, but by God himself who brought a miraculous birth from her as a virgin. And that baby born of her was fathered by God, miraculously created in that womb. The word came down to inhabit that body. And there's the Son of God. And his blood is valuable because he is the Son of God. That's God's plan to provide a sacrifice valuable enough to take care of your sin. We'll finish up this afternoon. This morning, if you're here, you need Jesus. If you don't have forgiveness of sins, do you realize this, friend? You're going to have to pay your debt. God's going to demand payment, and the penalty for sin is death. You've got a lake of fire. You're already under condemnation. You're sitting on death row this morning. He will have that sin punished. It will be paid for. He is just, and he cannot let it go. Jesus will pay that debt for you today. His blood will wash that sin away. When you've got faith in that blood and you obey the gospel, That blood will appease God's anger and wrath because that blood saves from his wrath. Put your faith in that blood and obey him in baptism. God's anger upon you for sin will be removed. Second thing, that blood will pay sufficiently the debt that you owe to God. It's a life valuable enough to pay for your life. Number three, that blood will enable God to be just this morning when he justifies you. And that's important to God. He cannot just let sin go. It's got to be punished. Your faith and obedience to the gospel enables God to be just when he forgives you of all your sins. So it appeases his anger. It pays your debt. It enables God to be just when he imputes righteousness to you and forgives you. 
that blood standing between you and the devil's hell this morning. And it's the only thing in this universe that will. You need it. I need it. We all need it continually. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.